0: Welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. Today, I'm pleased to welcome William S. Kaiser to the show. Dr. Kaiser is an assistant professor of history at Texas A&M University, San Antonio, and is the author of several books, including, most recently, Borderlands of Slavery, The Struggle Over Captivity and Peonage in the American Southwest, which came out in 2017 and which we'll be talking about today. Billy, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. To begin, why don't we first have you tell us about yourself? What path did you take to becoming a historian?
1: Well, um, I've always had an interest in history uh, since I was a a young child. Uh, It comes from my dad. I grew up in southern New Mexico, and uh, my dad and I, uh, my dad used to take me to to old um, historical sites, old forts, army camps, places like that. And um, by the time I was in, well, probably about second or third grade, uh, I was reading everything I could find on the Apaches and the military in the Southwest, and uh, that just sort of evolved over time into a uh, into a career goal to um, to become a, a history professor. Uh, so I've kind of always had the a passion for Southwest history, and. Um, and, and, and I was able to pursue that in college. I had um, a history degree, a bachelor's in history at New Mexico State University, and I then did my master's and my Ph.D. at Arizona State University. And uh, I'm now an uh, assistant professor of history, uh, as, as you said, at Texas A&M San Antonio.
0: And what got you interested in the topic of unfreedom in the American Southwest in particular? What drew you to this topic as a, as a topic for a monograph? So,
1: I kind of came to this topic um, indirectly through my prior research on other aspects of, of Southwest history. Uh, my, my original interest when I was in, in high school and college was, was military and Native American history in the Southwest, and my first two books pertain to those topics. And, as I was researching those uh, those two books over the course of several years, I continuously encountered references in the primary sources to to something called peonage. And so I never really investigated it a lot at that time, but it kept showing up over and over again in the in the historical documents. And so it was something that I was aware of going into graduate school. And when I was in graduate school, I took a, a seminar in 2010, and um, actually, it was a—I took it as an elective because it was offered through the English department at ASU, and it was a seminar in um, the literature of anti-slavery. And during that class, we uh, our our assignment for the class was uh, an extended an extended length research paper, and so I sort of naturally uh, fell back on this idea of peonage because it was something that I knew would relate to my research on the Southwest, but would also fit within the framework of that class. So that was when I really started kind of diving into the documents and looking at uh, at debt peonage in the Southwest. And as I did so, it evolved to include not only debt peonage, but also Indian captivity, uh, which was... A second form of enslavement in uh, in the 19th century Southwest, and it just uh, from that point it just kind of mushroomed into a um, into a, a dissertation, and from that point then uh, into um, into what ultimately became my third book.
0: Well, let's get into the book, and and it's primarily a book about peonage and, um, and enslavement in the antebellum and Civil War eras, but as you point out, particularly in the prologue, these institutions have a much longer history in the Southwest. Can you tell us about the long history of unfreedom in this region and what it was like um, even before Europeans arrived and then how Spanish colonization changed the dynamic? So... Coercive labor was
1: nothing new in um, in the American Southwest uh, when uh, when it became a part of the United States after the Mexican-American War, and my book deals primarily with that, uh, you know, the mid 19th century and with the period of American sovereignty. But uh, as you mentioned, the prologue kind of goes back further into the colonial era, and there has been quite a bit of scholarship in the last. 10 to 15 years dealing with that uh, with that earlier period, which is another reason why I chose to address the mid-19th century to sort of build upon that pre-existing scholarship. Um, in the pre-Columbian era, all throughout what is now the American West, there were various systems of, um, of, of enslavement, coercive labor. Uh, this typically followed patterns of warfare and violence. So, um, you know, traditionally, in a a global context, enslavement oftentimes arose uh, following military conquest. And this was the case oftentimes in the pre-Columbian era with indigenous tribes. The more powerful tribes, uh, particularly in the Southwest, were are, are known to have um, to have raided and subverted uh, neighboring weaker neighboring tribes into uh, varying forms of slavery. Of course, we don't have any documentary evidence of this, um, you know, prehistoric um, form methods of enslavement. But we know through various oral traditions, oral histories, uh, that it certainly existed after um, the advent of European colonialism. in the uh, the 16th century, we start to see the proliferation of of the enslavement of Indians, predominantly in the Southwest by the Spanish, who were the colonial power uh, in that region. So in reality, when European colonists arrived in the Western Hemisphere, they did not introduce slavery. They simply added a new component to something that already existed. And so we see in the 1500s uh, the fairly well-known encomienda system of Indian labor in the Spanish colonies. And we see over the period of a couple hundred years of colonialism, uh, the uh, widespread enslavement of Indians, oftentimes through what was called the Just War Doctrine. Uh, this basically was a loophole in Spanish colonial policy stating that any Indians who were captured in a just war, a justified war, could legitimately be enslaved. Uh, and this has more, most recently been written about in um, in Andres Resendez's book called The Other Slavery, published about two years ago and he deals extensively with the the Spanish colonial period, and he estimates that anywhere from about three to five million Indians uh, were enslaved in the Spanish colonies. So the, uh, the enslavement of Indians occurred earliest in terms of the colonial period, but by the late 1700s, we begin to see in the documents uh, occasional references to a, another form, of coercive labor, and that's peonage. The, um, the practice of debt peonage originated further south in Mexico um, during the Spanish colonial era, and we don't know exactly when it originated or where, but it seems to have sort of trickled northward um, into the northernmost provinces of New Spain Uh, most prominently New Mexico, by the 1770s to 1780s. The first reference to debt peonage in New Mexico is in 1778. And that's sort of just a a spotty reference because peonage does not begin to appear regularly in the documents until really the, the early 1800s. So what seems to have occurred in New Mexico, which was at the northernmost periphery of the the Spanish New World Empire, was that as the region became gradually more populated, the demand for labor there seems to have increased, and the advent of debt peonage seems to have complemented Indian slavery as a secondary form of coercive labor in that region— it's really not all that different than what we see in, um, in the Plantation South in the, in the uh, in 1800s or in even actually further back in the 1700s where, you know, when we think of, of the, the southern colonies, we think of Virginia, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina. As the population increased there, the demand for labor also increased and that then drove um, the, uh, uh, the enslavement of African Americans in that region. So there's some corollaries in that respect to, um, to chattel slavery in the South and to peonage and, and captivity in the Southwest. What we, what we can tell from, um, from the documents is that debt peonage seemed to really expand in prominence after 1821 in New Mexico. And the reason for that is that uh, Mexico achieved its independence from Spain that year. What happened was during the colonial era, the Spanish crown had very restrictive laws on colonial commerce. Colonists were not allowed to trade um, with with anybody outside of of the Spanish realm, so it was illegal for colonists in New Mexico, for example, to trade or conduct commerce with, with Americans further to the east when Mexico gained its independence in 1821, they lifted these restrictive commercial laws. And what that did is it opened up the Northern frontier of Mexico to American commerce. And that very same year, 1821, Missouri merchants opened the Santa Fe trail. And this brought about a very rapid intensification of, um, of trade between the United States and Northern Mexico. So after 1821, there's now an external market in the United States via the Santa Fe Trail for goods that are being produced in New Mexico. This drives the demand for labor in New Mexico, and we begin to see more and more and more uh, references to debt, peonage, and Indian captivity, basically indicating that the increasing demand uh, in the United States for Products of local manufacture in New Mexico had a corollary impact in driving the um, the enslavement of uh, of Hispanos through peonage and of Indians through captivity. So that kind of takes us into um, into the Mexican National period in the 1820s. So that by by the 1840s, when the United States takes possession of New Mexico, these two twin institutions of of bondage, peonage and captivity, uh, are very firmly entrenched in New Mexico society and in New Mexico's culture. So my book deals with primarily with the period after 1846 when peonage and captivity were sort of enthralled into American debates over slavery in the West and uh, American expansionism. But those those two systems, of course, of labor long predated American sovereignty in the region.
0: Tell us more about what peonage looked like on the ground. I imagine that many of our listeners are familiar with, with chattel slavery, as was common in the American South and elsewhere throughout North and South America. But peonage, they might know less about. So how what was it and how did people become enmeshed in this system?
1: So peonage is uh, is... I believe, a very underexplored historical topic in the terms of of um, the history of labor coercion in North America. As you said, we know a lot about chattel slavery in the South. Um, you know, thousands of books have been written about the topic, and we're starting to know more and more about Indian captivity in the West, which scholars have begun to address more and more in the last couple of decades. But debt peonage, for whatever reason, has— kind of escaped scholarly attention, Um, and I'm hoping, you know, that my book will sort of shine some light on that and and that we'll continue to learn more about it. Um, The way that peonage operated, it's a little more difficult to to get at the history of of debt peonage because the records are far more sparse. So let me start. Um, with that comparison. We know a lot about chattel slavery in the South, in large part because, uh, because those slaves were considered property and because they had cash value. This meant that uh, plantation owners and masters in the South kept very, very good records in many cases <clears throat> um, about how many slaves they had, what their value was, etc. But in New Mexico, peons were not chattel. They were not literally property, and they did not have cash value. And so the system of peonage operated uh, sort of below the radar of the documentary record in most cases. I have never encountered documents up to this time um, that, for example, list uh, peons on on a hacienda in New Mexico. So we have, it's a much more spotty record. But We do know quite a bit about how the system operated. And and that peonage, unlike chattel slavery, it had no racial prerogative. Peons were not subjected to labor uh, because of their race. And in fact, peons had almost everything in common with their masters except for socioeconomic status. So uh, peons were Hispanic, just as many of the masters were Hispanic in New Mexico, peons would have um, typically been Catholic, just like most of their masters would have been. They would have spoke Spanish just like their masters. So in reality, peons had a lot in common with their masters. Peonage came about through debt. And so so in this way, the primary difference between master and servant in New Mexico was, uh, was, as I said, socioeconomic status. And the way that a uh, A person a male or female would become a a debt peon would be that they would somehow well become indebted to a um to a, a landlord or or a master so in nineteenth century New Mexico there was a very small class of landowners and a very very large class of landless um, uh, hispanos and again not all that different than the American South and what would happen is if you were landless in 19th century New Mexico, that typically also meant that you were poor. And in the event that you needed money for something, you would have to take out a loan, but there were no banks at that time. And so the loan would come from a a wealthy landowner or Hacendado. The most common <clears throat> causes of indebtedness were often related to the Catholic church. So... For example, if a a landless poor person in New Mexico wanted to get married or wanted to baptize a child or wanted or needed to, uh, to bury a deceased family member and hold a funeral, they would have to pay the Catholic priest to do that service, but they would not be able to afford that, so they would have to get an advance from somebody who had the money. And that indebtedness would then have to be repaid through through the person's labor. And these labor, these, the term of labor was typically negotiated through a verbal contract. There were not formal written contracts that we can trace in the documentary record, which is another reason why it, it's sort of difficult to really quantify debt peonage in New Mexico the way that the system operated was once a person took on that debt, they accepted a term of servitude to, uh, to the creditor who then became their master. And that term of servitude might be a year or two years at the outset, but the, the verbal contract was manipulated in such a way that the term of servitude really became, uh, for for lifetime. And the reason for this is because that peon had to pay interest on their, on their loan. So one reason why some scholars don't directly identify peonage as a type of slavery is because peons were usually paid a wage. That wage might be a dollar a month. It might be two dollars a month. It was, in, in any event, it was a very small wage, but the, the compounding interest on the initial loan was always more than the wage. So in reality, the peon's debt grew and grew and grew over time, even though they were making a small amount of money each month. So it, it, the system was manipulated in a way that it appeared like it was a form of wage labor, and it appeared like it was voluntary. You know, Nobody forced a person to go into debt. But in reality, the um the, the the servitude was was really um it was really coerced to become a lifetime servitude. And for these reasons, I argue in my book that, that peonage rightfully deserves to be called a form of slavery.
0: And as you alluded to um earlier in, in the show. Things begin to change in the Southwest in the late 1840s when the United States assumes sovereignty over a large chunk of the Southwest after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. Can you tell us a bit about how American conquest changed these systems in uh, New Mexico and in the Southwest after the Mexican American War?
1: The change was very gradual, but eventually the change was also very profound and very widespread. When New Mexico became a part of the United States after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, um, the the Southwest or the Mexican Cession lands, which included Utah Territory and California, they were immediately thrust into sectional debates in Congress, revolving around the idea of slavery or free soil in the American West, and this really sort of um, drove the sectional crisis. Um, that came to define the 1850s and then ultimately erupted in Civil War in, um, in 1861. What we see is that almost from the moment when New Mexico became a part of the United States some free soil northerners began to cast light on this, um, the system of debt peonage and also Indian captivity. Um, and they began to, to raise the topic during debates in Congress, particularly debates that culminated in the Compromise of 1850, two years after um, the Mexican American War. And peonage began to sort of influence the discussions in, um, in Washington, D.C., and also throughout Eastern political circles. It began to influence the discussions about what really is slavery and what really is free labor. What seems to have occurred is that over the course of the 1850s and 1860s, Northerners more and more came around to the idea that slavery was not limited to the chattel system um, in the South. It was not simply a racial system involving African Americans in the southern states. As more and more um, publicity was, was shown on, uh, on debt peonage, more abolitionists and more anti-slavery activists began to to identify peonage for what it was, which was a an oppressive form of coercive labor. And as time wore on, peonage came under the uh, it came into the crosshairs of the abolitionist movement. Um, There was a couple of of critical um, court cases in New Mexico in the 1850s that also contributed to this, and it's sort of ironic. um, At almost the exact same time that the Supreme Court made its landmark decision in Dred Scott in 1857, and that, of course, was a decision that came down on the side of pro-slavery interests, ruling that that slaves were not citizens, had no rights to sue in court, and ruling that— um, that basically Congress had no power to um, to prohibit slavery in the territories. Almost at the same time, in New Mexico's territorial Supreme Court, a decision was passed down in a peon case that was almost exactly the opposite. It was a a anti-slavery decision, and it was a decision that upheld the legal rights of debt peons, and that called peonage for the first time a system of involuntary servitude reminiscent of slavery. So it's sort of ironic that in Washington, D.C., in the U.S. Supreme Court, you have a, a landmark ruling on, on uh, slavery, uh, really a case of judicial activism that came down on the side of post-slavery um, causes. But in Santa Fe, in the territorial Supreme Court, you have... A, ruling, a landmark ruling that came down very clearly on the side of debt peons, and it was very clearly an anti-slavery ruling. And the judge in that case in Santa Fe was named Kirby Benedict, and he was actually a, uh, a longtime acquaintance of Abraham Lincoln. He had ridden circuit with Lincoln in Illinois in the 1830s and Benedict's, um, Benedict wrote the majority decision in that territorial court ruling, and this sort of gets to um, to what I write about in the conclusion of my book is the long-term judicial ramifications of, um, of debt peonage in New Mexico because Kirby Benedict's ruling in 1857 became the guiding precedent about 40 to 50 years later when the U.S. Supreme Court began ruling on cases of peonage in um, in the Jim Crow South. So the discussions, the, the political and legal discussions over debt peonage in antebellum and Civil War era New Mexico had very long-term ramifications in terms of how the nation came to view and define um, free labor and uh and slavery uh, after the civil war
0: we've focused so far mostly on uh, the institution of peonage, but as you 've said earlier. Indian captivity was also very common in the American Southwest, and even American chattel slavery does begin in some relatively small way to appear in the territory of New Mexico. Can you tell us a bit about these other forms of unfreedom and their role in the Southwest in the lead up to the Civil War?
1: One of the things that is sort of complicated about 19th century New Mexico is that there were multiple forms of involuntary servitude there. And as you said, there were a small number of of black slaves. the the um, the traditional what what we tend to think of today as as, as the traditional form of American slaves. Um, now that number in New Mexico was very small. In eighteen fifty, the census enumerated twenty four um, African American slaves in New Mexico Territory, and in eighteen sixty, that number was was still only a few dozen. And m- many of these. African-American slaves in New Mexico at that time belonged to army officers who had taken them there from other from other stations and ports where they had previously been. So it, there was not a widespread system of chattel slavery in New Mexico. And one of the reasons for that was that they didn't need more slaves. The demand for labor in the region was already satisfied by... Thousands of Indian captives and thousands more of debt peons, so there was simply not a demand for a massive influx of additional slaves in the region, and this really has a lot to do with the fact that the desert southwest is not conducive to um, to intensive plantation style agriculture for um, for global export. We think of um, of the cotton belt in the south producing you know um, the majority of the world 's cotton. The desert southwest was simply too dry, too arid for that type of agriculture. And so it was a much more localized subsistence type of, um, of economy. But nonetheless, there were a handful of African-American slaves in the region, enough that the territorial legislature in the late 1850s actually passed a slave code that came down on the side of, of uh, pro-slavery interests. The slave code... Um, regulated the uh, the mobility and the daily lives of any African Americans living in the territory, and it was that slave code in 1859 was really designed as sort of a political statement um, to sort of pander to southern politicians at that time. So, African American slavery um, is not a uh, a real Tangible thing in New Mexico territory, but it does have some um, some political ramifications there in the um, in the antebellum era. However, Indian captivity continued to be another prominent form of uh, of involuntary servitude, and this again was carried over from the colonial era uh, in the um, in the 18th century, and. The the number of Indian captives in New Mexico was was variously estimated by eyewitnesses at anywhere from about three to five thousand um, captive slaves in the 1850s. And to sort of put this in perspective, three to five thousand doesn't sound like much, but when you add three to five thousand Indian slaves to probably an equal number of debt peons, say say five thousand. We can estimate in the 1850s that there were probably close to 10,000 um, servants, slaves in New Mexico Territory, but again to put that into perspective, New Mexico Territory at that time only had about 80,000 residents, so 10,000 doesn't seem like a lot when we think of, of the American South. and and during this, you know by the advent of the civil war in 1861 there were about 4 million uh, black slaves in the south but in terms of the percentage of the regional population this was a significant amount of uh, a significant number of slaves so indian captives were were typically just like in the colonial era were typically taken through warfare and slave raiding and most of the captives in the new mexico settlements in the 1850s and 60s came from either the, the Paiute, the Ute, or the Navajo tribes. There were some Apache and some Comanche captives, but not as many. And these captives were typically taken during slave raids, during which, um, you know, several dozen um, New Mexicans from the from the settlements along the Rio Grande would would come together almost kind of like a posse, and they would ride out into uh, into Navajo country or Ute country, and they would they would um, if they had the opportunity they would uh, they would raid camps and they would take women and children captives with the purpose of enslaving them back in the uh, settlements in New Mexico, and this became sort of a really ruthless kind of a bilateral. Practice where the Indians would reciprocate. They would, in response, uh, they would raid the Hispanic settlements in northern New Mexico, and they would take women and children captives themselves. So there's a lot of violence that surrounded the um, the captive raiding network in northern New Mexico. But nonetheless, the end result is that several thousand Indians, by the time of the Civil War, were, were living not with their um, tribes where they had been um, had, had been born and raised, but were living instead in a state of subjectivity and labor bondage in the New Mexico settlements.
0: So New Mexico becomes a territory after American conquest, but the question of New Mexico statehood, as you argue in the book, plays an important role in really inflaming sectional conflicts leading up to the Civil War. Can you tell us a bit about how that played out and why New Mexico statehood became such an important question?
1: The question of statehood for New Mexico revolved around several issues. And New Mexico actually remained a territory for 62 years. It became a territory in 1850 with the Compromise of 1850 and did not become a state until 1912. There were, however, a number of, of very serious movements to become a state uh, within New Mexico over the course of the 19th century. and A couple of the earliest movements were in the 18—were in 1850, um, when ultimately it became a territory instead of a state, and again in 1860 to 61. And this also inflamed congressional debates over the idea of peonage and captivity, because the idea was, would New Mexico be a free state or a slave state if it were admitted to statehood? Now, Northerners argued that New Mexico, basically Northerners helped to block New Mexico statehood because they believed that New Mexico, if it were granted statehood, would become a southern slave state. And the reason this was significant was because of the political power in Congress. If New Mexico became a pro-slave state, that would be two more pro-slavery senators, and it would also be a couple more pro-slavery representatives in the House. As long as New Mexico remained a territory, New Mexico had no voting power in Congress. And this really kind of is the crux of of the debates over westward expansion, and and why Southerners sort of led the charge for westward expansion was the more slave states that were added in the West, the more political power the pro-slave base would have in Congress and this would help to offset the North's political power in Congress at a time when the Northern population was increasing dramatically due to, uh, to European immigration. So <clears throat> Northerners worked to block New Mexico statehood on the premise that for one thing, there were already a lot of slaves there in the form of peons and captives. And on the secondary premise that New Mexico's uh, representatives in Congress, if New Mexico became a state, that those representatives would, would vote um, in favor of sustaining the institution of, of slavery in the United States. So, what happens then is that the existence of these alternative forms of slavery in New Mexico actually helps to um, to undermine New Mexico's efforts at becoming a state during the Civil War era. A secondary consideration here, which is um, uh, sort of tangential to, um, to my arguments in the book, and a, a secondary reason that New Mexico failed to achieve statehood for so long was the, was the fact that the majority of the inhabitants there were Catholics. And during the Civil War era, um, this was a time when, uh, when nativism, anti-Catholic sentiment, was very prominent, especially in the north. And so it was not just anti-slavery northerners, but also anti-Catholic nativist northerners who sort of coalesced to, um, to block New Mexico's efforts at achieving statehood during that time.
0: And how did the Civil War play out in the American Southwest? Were uh, unfree people in New Mexico affected at all by such landmark civil War era events as the Emancipation Proclamation?
1: The Civil War, <clears throat> excuse me, the Civil War had profound impacts on peonage and captivity in New Mexico, although the Emancipation Proclamation uh, really did not. So the most immediate way in which the Civil War benefited, uh, particularly debt peons, was similar to the way in which the Civil War benefited black slaves in the South. Um, when the Civil War began back East, uh, by 1862, runaway slaves were seeking refuge in Union camps, and these were, were called contraband slaves, and they... Um, uh, Congress actually passed a couple of, of laws, the first and second confiscation acts, that um, that upheld the act of, of protecting runaway black slaves once they reached Union lines. In New Mexico, an order went out from the department commander, um, Colonel Canby, in 1862, that Union military commanders at the various forts in New Mexico were instructed to Basically, grant asylum and protection to runaway peons, and they were also instructed, um, whenever possible, to enlist those peons into military service as uh, as volunteers and militiamen. So, in New Mexico, a number of peons, and again, we don't have any statistical evidence of how many, but it seems that this um, that this certainly did become a pathway to liberation for peons. Um, these peons, through military service for the Union Army in New Mexico, were able to, uh, to gain their freedom. <clears throat> and the reason why there was a demand for military volunteers and militiamen in New Mexico in 1862 was because the Confederates invaded the territory. Um, and, and the Confederates did this at the onset of the Civil War. This was... Um, this project was begun in the summer of 1861, when um, when a Confederate army mustered in Texas and and uh, and invaded New Mexico. Their invasion was unsuccessful and was eventually repulsed early in 1862, um, after the Confederate defeat at the Battle of Glorieta outside of Santa Fe. But nonetheless, um, the Union Army maintained a large presence in New Mexico throughout the Civil War, and the enlistment of peons became um, a, a way that it became the first way that peons achieved um, achieved freedom in New Mexico. When the Civil War ended, um, of course, the 13th Amendment ratified in December of 1865 marked the moment, the official moment at which 4 million black slaves in the South became free. But this also sort of speaks to the peculiarities of slavery in New Mexico, neither Indian slaves nor Mexican peons, Hispanic peons, uh, were, were initially granted their freedom. And w- what happened was radical Republicans, after the Civil War, had to take additional action in New Mexico to expand the parameters of that 13th Amendment. The argument um the argument for debt peons in New Mexico was that they were not slaves because, as I said earlier, because they went into debt voluntarily and because they were paid wages. And, of course, this was sort of a smokescreen um, that that New Mexican um, masters and landholders used to try to portray their system of peonage as a a benign um, wage labor system. But radical Republicans began to see it for what it was. And in 1867, Congress passed what was called the Peon Law, which specifically expanded the parameters of the 13th Amendment to include debt peonage. In a similar vein, Indian captivity um, came under target uh, in, uh, in the summer of 1865, and was uh, was the subject of an executive order from President Andrew Johnson, in which he mandated that um, that government officials in the Southwest begin uh, working to liberate Indian captives. So, in the, in neither instance, Indian captivity or debt peonage, in neither of those instances did the Thirteenth Amendment successfully result in their immediate emancipation. It actually took additional um, additional laws in the form of first an executive order and then a, a congressional peon law to affect the um, the freedom of those of those involuntary servants in New Mexico
0: so finally Billy what in your estimation are the legacies of of slavery and captivity and particularly of peonage in the southwest you tell some very affecting stories to this point in the book's conclusion I'm wondering if you could elaborate on those a bit here
1: I think probably the most important and long-lasting legacy of peonage and captivity in the Southwest was the legal impacts that it had many decades later in the Jim Crow South. After the Civil War, after the 13th Amendment freed slaves in the South, Southerners began to devise other sort of creative ways of coercing African-Americans into bondage. Uh, Douglas Blackman has written about this extensively, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for his book um, on um, on sort of neo-slavery, or um, what he calls slavery by another name. And in the South, in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, all the way up into the 1900s, Southerners continued to subject African-Americans to coercive forms of bondage, what Blackman calls neo-slavery, and they did this oftentimes through a form of debtor servitude or or debt peonage. Southerners sort of adopted the system that had been used in in territorial New Mexico, and what they often did in the South was um, they passed uh, local counties and states would pass various laws they would pass vagrancy laws they would pass um, uh, laws saying that um, uh, basically creating petty crimes out of things like cursing uh, spitting on the street um, uh, vagrancy not being able to prove that you had a, a residence and these laws were were targeted Almost exclusively towards working-age African-American men, and the way that this system operated in the post-Civil War South was um, a, uh, a a black man could be accused of of committing a misdemeanor, say he were to um, to use foul language in the presence of a white woman, um, or or something along those lines. He could be uh, um, arrested for a, a misdemeanor, and he would be um, he would be fined by a judge perhaps $3, $5, a small amount, but nonetheless an amount that he could not repay. And what would happen then is that white landowners from the, uh, from the vicinity would act as a sort of a bail bondsman, and they would come and bail that man out of jail by paying his fine. And in return, he now was in debt to that person, and he had to work to pay off that debt. And so it became another system of debtor servitude that was not all that different than um, than the system in New Mexico. The biggest difference being in New Mexico, there was not a um there was not typically a criminal conviction aspect to it. but nonetheless, this system of of debtor servitude operated in the southern states for for many decades until the first decade of the nineteen hundreds when it started to come under um, scrutiny in the court systems. And this gets back to the legacy of New Mexican peonage because as I alluded to earlier in 1857, the New Mexico territorial Supreme court issued a ruling that declared peonage to be a form of involuntary labor, basically slavery. And when Courts in the South began looking at debt peonage. Um, In several cases, black peons were suing for their freedom in the South in the early 1900s. When these courts began looking at this, they needed some sort of guiding legal precedent. And the only precedent that existed that they could find was New Mexico 50 years earlier. And in numerous cases in the South, New Mexico's territorial courts were cited as the guiding precedent. And and in, in one instance, a, uh, a case involving peonage in the South went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and this was in 1904, and the U.S. Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of the black peons, and they were granted their freedom from peonage based on the legal precedents that were set in the 1857 case in the New Mexico territory. So the most significant long-term legacy of especially of debt peonage in the Southwest is that it provided the, um, the case law or the legal doctrine that was necessary 50 years later to, to, emancipate, um, to emancipate peons or debtor servants in the Jim Crow South. So it really plays into a longer history of of not just slavery, but also um, how the United States defined unfree labor more broadly um, across not just the Southwest, but across the entire country.
0: So Billy, now that this book is out, do you have another project in mind? Do Do you have something else you're working on next? Do you know?
1: I have a couple of things. I have Uh, I have a new book coming out in about three weeks, and it is called Coast to Coast Empire, Manifest Destiny, and the New Mexico Borderlands, and that book is with the University of Oklahoma Press, and it deals um, sort of more broadly with um, with the impacts of American Manifest Destiny on the southwest borderlands from 1821 through the end of the Civil War, and I do in that book— uh, I have a chapter that weaves in um, debt peonage and Indian captivity, and the um, the role of those systems in um, in emancipation and uh, and abolition. So that that project is complete, and that book will be out um, very soon. I'm currently researching and writing a book dealing with Civil War diplomacy in the U.S. Mexico borderlands, specifically looking at how Union and Confederate agents. Um, used irregular clandestine forms of of diplomacy in northern Mexico to try to cut deals with independent-minded Mexican governors in Sonora, Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tomalipas, and how um, especially the Confederacy was sort of dependent on these under-the-table dealings, to, um, to, to sustain their, their operations in the Trans-Mississippi Theater of the Civil War. That's, uh, that, I'm, I'm about halfway through that project now in terms of research and writing, and that's under advanced contract with the University of Pennsylvania Press, um, the same publisher as Borderlands of Slavery.
0: Well, you sound busy. We've taken up enough of your time today. So thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: William Kaiser is an assistant professor of history at Texas A&M University, San Antonio, and is the author of Borderlands of Slavery, The Struggle Over Captivity and Peonage in the American Southwest, which came out with the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2017. Billy, thanks again. Thank you.